Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 319, and today's guest is Peter Berg, managing partner at M12, Microsoft's venture capital fund. I've had lots of investors as guests on the podcast, but I was excited to interview Peter because I've never interviewed an investor from a CVC, or a corporate venture capital fund. I'm not sure what the number is today, but according to a 2023 report about CVCs, it counts 1,100 active CVCs. Based on this scale, it is a very meaningful opportunity for entrepreneurs in terms of raising capital. Thus, Peter and I pretty much get right into the details towards the beginning of our conversation about the world of CVCs, from what they are, differentiators, strategic advantages of raising capital from a CVC, how to evaluate a CVC, and other topics. As previously stated, M12 is Microsoft's VC fund. The firm invests in seed, Series A, and Series B rounds of funding across different categories like cloud infrastructure, AI, cybersecurity, Web3 and gaming, vertical SaaS, and developer tools. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how Peter landed a first name at Peter Handle on Twitter, or now known as X.com, a walk through Peter's career, including his investment into Square and the creation of Visa Ventures, which scaled to a global organization and went on to invest in Stripe Lupe, which was a Boston startup that was acquired by Samsung and many other companies, all the details on Peter's area of focus at M12 and what he is targeting for investments, some sample portfolio companies at M12 like InWorld and Typeface, his thoughts and opinions on the current state of the market for raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to all of our exclusive employment branding content series, and more. Send an email to infoadventurefizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Peter. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, I talked to a lot of investors for the podcast, but I think this is the first interview that I've had where I'm talking to someone who's part of a corporate VC arm, which you've had a couple of stops along the way in that world. So I want to talk about that. Um, but I also feel like I'm talking to a, like a tech celebrity because you have an at Peter handle on Twitter, which is phenomenal. So I wanted to start, like, how did you land that? Were you that early on with Twitter or now X? Uh, yes, I was, I was that early slash that old. Uh, no, I, I, uh, <laughs> I started using it before it officially launched. I, I, I've always kind of been an early adopter, which is maybe why I'm in venture investing. Um, but yeah, I, I heard it. I heard about it through friends. I think even before the media wrote about it and just tried out the Peter handle, it was available and the rest is history. Um, but yeah, I used to like hang out with all the early Twitter founders and the, the team. We used to actually go, uh, there was like a, they had a running group too. It was like tweet feet. Uh, we just would run through, it was like a running club through San Francisco with mostly like Twitter people. So like most wow. of the founders at some point joined. That is impressive. So yeah, you must get like, there must be benefits. I mean, you are still very active on the platform and you, you know, I was going through some of your posts and they're uh, very insightful uh -oh. and some were humorous yet um, you still must get some followers that are probably looking for at Peter and thinking it's somebody else. 
Uh, you were not wrong. Yeah, I do get DMs for. Uh, in fact, I recently just got one. It's like, how much for your handle? Um, so uh, it's not for sale. Uh, I, I don't know what the current terms of service are of now X, I guess. But uh, it was right. selling them was against the terms of service. Not that I would even consider it. But yeah. Yeah. Too funny. Okay. Uh, well, let's get into something a little bit more on point here. So um, most of my audience, I think, know corporate VC as a financing vehicle, but I didn't want to assume that. So I thought it'd be good to do a primer of, of, you know, why do corporations have a VC arm? What is the primary differences between a corporate VC versus a traditional VC from the outlook of a company, as well as a startup that's raising capital? So just like an overview of corporate VC and what is it all about? Yeah, sure. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, corporate VC, uh, typically you've got one or sometimes more uh, limited partners or LPs that are the corporation. So in M12's case, which I'm, I work for M12, I'm a managing partner at uh, at M12, which is uh, Microsoft's venture arm. And I've also uh, previously ran Visa Ventures, uh, which is their venture arm. Uh, so corporate VC or CVC is basically venture capital, but just where your investors or either primary or exclusive stakeholders are are a corp one or more corporations. So in our case, Microsoft is our sole LP or limited partner, uh, i.e. sole investor. Um, and we invest off the balance sheet uh, into early stage companies, primarily seed through series B. Um, but to your broader question, I mean, I think there are as, as many flavors of CVC as probably there are corporations that do it. Um, and I think everyone, you know, every each corporation has their own objectives. Uh, for the most part, what we do at M12 is both, you know, investing for, um, we're trying to really find emerging technologies and like the most interesting, you know, transformative companies in the technology sector uh, to create to invest in and then also create meaningful relationships with them, right? So M12 is is evaluated both on financial returns as well as strategic impact. Uh, so we're, our leadership is quite clear. We're here to make money and not to lose it, right? And not just to do token investments for strategic reasons. We're actually trying to find really best-in-class companies that are good standalone companies, independent of any association with Microsoft. Um, they have to be a, a good standalone venture scale business that we want to invest in. And then in addition, we also look for ways to work with that company. So uh, I think CVC is often, well, a lot has been said about CVC. Sometimes it's maligned. Um, and I think actually CVC can be a superpower, frankly. Now, granted, I've been part of two of them, so I might be a little bit biased in this direction. But um, you know, the, the joke with VCs often like, oh, let me know how I can be helpful, right? And like, that's almost a cliche at this point among founders. It's like, oh yeah, VCs, they're all trying to, they're all selling money and they're trying to differentiate themselves, right? Um, in our case, like with CVCs, we actually can be helpful. Like it's very, we have concrete ways and the quantifiable ways that not only we can, but also have added values, value to our portfolio companies and worked with them in meaningful ways. So I actually think it's kind of amazing, right? Um, to, to have the backing and like the resources of a large corporation that you can tap into when necessary without, in our case, we do not require companies to work with us or to have a commercial arrangement with us or to get executive sponsorship to do a deal, which is actually very, very nice. And I, I feel like that's, I'm 12 has as close to the ideal setup for a CVC as I've ever seen. Um, I have some opinions having been, having done this twice now. Um, and I think we've set it up really well where we, really try to add value and like do right by our startups without requiring any unnatural acts of them, right? We don't make them work with us uh, prematurely or, you know, as a condition of investment, but we do 
really look for ways to engage with them and partner with them and also accelerate outcomes with and for them, right? So that can be like go-to-market assistance, product partnerships, any number of different things. Um, so to me, that's actually a huge benefit of CVC. And if you're a founder, uh, you know, a reason to consider taking money from corporates is for that relationship. Although I think, you know, just advice to founders is like really understand like how that CVC is structured, what motivates them, like, and what their process looks like, because not all are the same, right? I think we we try to run a streamlined, independent process at M12 where we make our own investment decisions. We don't require executive sponsorship, but we work very hard to build bridges into Microsoft so that, that and that accrues to the benefit of our, our uh, portfolio companies. So what would be some of the like potential pitfalls that founders should be on the lookout for dealing with a corporate venture capital arm? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, it depends on the the company. So I don't want to paint with too broad strokes, but I think just some general um, general things to be aware of or look out for as a founder, it, you know, what, how is the CVC measured, right? Uh, what are their goals? What are their objectives? Um, I think in our case, we're very fortunate that we're both aligned strategically as well as financially, right? We're looking for good financial outcomes. And so that aligns incentives with the founders. Um, if it's just strategic insight and you're, they don't care about financial returns, like that can sometimes lead to the corporation wanting certain things that the founders may not prioritize as much and might not, not might not be the right thing for the business. Um, I think the other thing to think about is like, pro, what does the process look like? Who needs to sign off? You know, found fund fundraising. I've been on the operating side, actually, most of my career not uh, versus the investing side. Fundraising is a huge distraction from building, right? So you want to be... Ideally, like do it as quickly as possible and then get back to building and like, you know, uh, focus on what the, your core business, like your core business is not fundraising, hopefully, it's actually building something of use. And so just understanding what the process looks like, what the timeline looks like, what what gates you need to get through, right? Are there what kind of approvals you need, like that kind of stuff? Um, you know, again, we're fairly uh, fortunate to have a streamlined and like independent governance process. We've got great support from the top down. I think that's the other thing is like, where does... How, you know, how does the CVC uh, operate within the company? Like, what's their relationship with the parent company? Um, can they actually move the needle for you? Like, you know, are are they able to to do what maybe you guys envision? Um, you know, and some, I think the other thing to understand is like, do they require a commercial agreement? Do they require some sort of, you know, do you have to be built on their tech stack? Do you have to have a business deal with them to get investment, right? Like figuring that up upfront um, really it would be wise as a founder. Um, again, we don't require that, but we look for ways to like build that over time. Um, and again, like in a way that is right for the business. Um, I've seen other corporations sometimes do things that are inorganic, I'll call it, right? Where they require you to do certain things, move to the tech stack, et cetera. And like, that might not be the right thing for the given stage of business you're at. All right. Well, let's uh, rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Oh, wow. Going way back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. Um, my one of my, my mom was a third generation or is third generation Californian, which is, I feel like sufficiently rare. Most people are either covering coming or going. Uh, my dad was an immigrant and came from Germany, uh, and so uh, as a child, I don't know. I, I was fortunate to have kind of uh, see a bunch of different things, travel a bunch to Europe and and other places. Um, as a, and as a kid, like I was always just very curious. Um, I loved. I love math, science, like it was very curious. It was like tinkering. Um, I wasn't, and I, I had no idea what I was going to be when I grew up. Uh, in fact, like when I was, I think in fifth grade, I was in this, uh, this, this class and they were, they asked us like to design a business card for like your future job. 
and I could not pick one. So what I, I invented my own and I called it, you know, problem solver. So I, I had made this like little business card where That's I was like, cool. I'm a problem solver. I had a little light bulb on it. And, uh, and I think looking back, like I didn't, uh, now I, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think I can appreciate it differently, but like, I think that's kind of what I've, I've been doing a version of that ever since, you know, either building product or like finding interesting ways to connect the dots. Um, I think maybe that's why I like CVC because it's not just investing. Like it's like investing with an extra level of difficulty. Not only do you have to find good financial investments, but you also have like ideally are looking for things that are strategically aligned to what the the LP looks looks for. So um yeah. Anyway, that's a little. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much of my child you want to childhood you want to delve into, but that's the those are the cliff notes. Well, what led you down the path of studying mathematical and computational science, and then statistics at Stanford? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good question. I again, I I have so many different interests. Like I'm just, I've always been curious and really like exploring different domains. And so I started off like down the physics path and then I realized like I am not a physicist. Like people who do physics for a living are like a different breed. I respect them. I admire them. But that is not me. Um, but I've always liked applying science and technology to solving like real world either questions or problems. And so mathematical and computational science, I think they may have renamed it now, but like it was an, it was and is an interdisciplinary major. major. So it allowed me to take allowed me to take a bunch of different classes from everything from economics to math to CS um, to statistics and and combine those and then I got a master's in statistics again because I liked I wasn't into theoretical math like math for the sake of math but rather applying it to solve problems or answer questions right so I that's what I loved about those domains so it was like you you can actually use numbers to answer you know questions in the real world that people care about like one of the projects I did when I was uh, for like my senior thesis was not a thesis, but like one of the projects for a class was to estimate the male to female ratio in like Bay area and surrounding bars. Right. Because in the Bay area, there's like, there's a joke. I don't know if you've heard it, like where the, uh, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Uh, Cause there's so many nerds out there. Um, and so I was like, well, how odd, how good are the odds actually? And so I was like, well, let's figure it out. Right. And so, I mean, it's kind of cheeky, but it's like, that's the kind of stuff where like, you know, people don't think of that as a statistical problem necessarily. It's more of like a cheeky kind of dating question, um, mm -hmm. but it's actually, you can answer it with math, right? And so a uh, very nerdy approach. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, how did you uh, get your career started? Uh, so before this cool thing of data scientist was invented for all the, these tech companies, there, uh, there were like two tracks. It was like insurance, like <laughs> there was like, you know, research for statisticians. So I, I became an actuary actually. Um, it was a pension actuary, but I, I guess I've always liked kind of pushing the envelope or doing new things, even in like staid or maybe traditional fields like actuarial science. Um, so I was very fortunate to land at a kind of a boutique company that had a pretty forward thinking, uh, approach. So we actually created a tech platform. Um, really we created SaaS platforms before SaaS was a kind of a ubiquitous term. Um, we took a very manual, I mean, highly paid, expensive actuarial talent, jockeying Excel spreadsheets uh, was basically like the product we were selling our services. And so we were like, well, what if we turn this into software that you could automate this design of like tax optimized, uh, tax optimized plans? Long story short, built an online platform, first of its kind to automate and scale these things. And that was ultimately acquired by JP Morgan. Um, and then I, I didn't really want to stay there for an extended period of time. So I left shortly after the acquisition. Um, and then 
uh, kind of from there, I, I think I had my taste of like technology and building software and really like uh, from then on kind of stayed in that in that world. Yeah, you, you had to stop at, at Joby. So what did you do there? Yeah, a friend of mine kind of recruited me into there um, at the time as I was leaving, uh, as I was leaving JP Morgan um, post acquisition. And so Joby uh, is still around. It's been acquired <clears throat> since, but um, we were building a thing called, it was my four, my one foray into like consumer products. Um, so we were building a thing called the Gorilla Pod, which is a flexible camera tripod with like bendable, wrappable legs. Um, and that, th that thing was just, it was just like amazing. Uh, the founder had actually invented it in grad school and had always wanted to commercialize it. And so we basically, you know, started commercializing this thing and it was, it was amazing. It was a great ride. And that thing sold like hotcakes. And while there I helped like launch new product lines. I went to China, um, helped open their uh, sales office in Europe and establish, uh, our sales operations there. Um, and then also, uh, that was right around the time when the iPhone was uh, had been released, um, and so we actually developed a the original camera app on the iPhone was uh, pretty bare bones. Let's call it. I mean, it was like a, <laughs> had a shutter that would like you know close and then open again. It was like this you know skeuomorphic design of like an actual shutter closing and opening, and your your one photo would like take a while, like a couple seconds to like save in the background. It was a very slow process. Wow. So as photographers okay. or like you know people who are selling photography accessories were like, this could be better. And so we built a camera app that basically has all of the features you have in your camera app natively. We built in like 2007 or eight, I think it was 2008. Um, and then we released it kind of as a marketing thing. That thing got over a million downloads in like less than three weeks. I mean, just Apple actually featured it as a featured app, um, which was kind of amazing. I got this call from Apple on like a late on a Thursday and they're like, could you get us collateral by tomorrow morning? I'm like, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no promises, but you know, we think your app is interesting. And then sure enough, it was like a featured app over the weekend. So it was great. Well, that's interesting because that's like validation of, I don't know how they do it now, but that in the early days of the app store, you had no idea mm -hmm. that it was going to be featured. Yeah, whether if it absolutely. was featured in the app store or you know, one of their television commercials, you had no idea. And then all of a sudden you're like, what? And you're getting yep. all these You just downloads. get this call or email and like, hi, yeah. you know, we, we noticed your app. Can you send us some things? And we're like, sure. <laughs> you just, I was like, I called my designer. I was like, drop everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so it's it fun. Um, but then from there, I went back into the kind of the SaaS and the fintech SaaS world and uh, did another, did more SaaS startups. So. All right. Then off to your first stop in uh, corporate venture capital. So uh, what led you to Visa? Uh, yeah, I was self-employed at the time. We'd started another company, kind of, um, I think we had sold to JP Morgan. Um, they didn't really know how to scale it. And so there was a huge market opportunity still. And so we kind of built um, version 2.0 of that. And um, that was going along, humming, and it was doing great. Um, and then I met uh, over a dinner party, actually, met some senior executives at Visa and started talking about their latest acquisition, kind of like payment strategy, where it where the world was going in terms of digital payments. Uh, and they were like, oh, how long have you been in payments? I was like, oh no, I just, I just find it a fascinating space. I've never, I'm not actually in payments. Like, um, they're like, well, do you, would you like to have a conversation? I was like, oh, I'm not really, I'm like happily self-employed, like it's fine. Um, but I just had a series of conversations and it was really interesting. And it was a fascinating time for payments. It was kind of this intersection of technology. Like now it's like, People take it for granted fintech and payments, and all these things like Stripe and Square and all these companies just like are you know huge companies. Um, at the time, they like I mean they barely even existed, right? They were still an idea, and so 
I was very interested at the intersection of, again, kind of interdisciplinary things, right? So the intersection of payments and technology. So I joined initially in product strategy and actually they had just, uh, shortly after I joined, we had, we had made an investment in Square uh, and Obviously, some folks at Visa saw the vision and, you know, obviously made the investment. Uh, but a lot of people were like, why are we investing in this company with this dongle and like flea markets? Like, you know, anyone that can accept a, a credit card already does today. Like, this is ridiculous. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure they're onto something here. <laughs> uh, and so I managed the the strategic relationship initially for several years with Square. And we did, some amazing collaborations came out of that. I mean, we, we did a whole bunch of stuff together. Um, and I think it made both companies better, right? We got insight into the stuff that Square was seeing firsthand. Square was getting the benefits of our expertise. Like there's a, a relationship with banks, like a whole bunch of other stuff that the network could provide that they otherwise couldn't really access effectively. Um, and that I think that's a good example of like, if a, I've had a longstanding thesis and it was kind of some further cemented by the work we were doing with, you know, Visa and Square and then subsequent work, uh, venture investing. I've had a long standing thesis that if you can marry the, like the innovation, the agility, the creativity of a startup with like the scale, the resources, um, and you know, kind of the, the, the access of a, of a large company or an incumbent magic can happen at that intersection. Right. And I think oftentimes they're speaking very different languages. And again, like there was a huge faction of these that were like, what, what are we doing with these people? Like, why are we even giving them the time of day, let alone investing? Right. And, but there were a lot of, there were enough people and enough momentum and senior leadership understood it. And they were like, no, this is actually additive, right? And it was mutually beneficial. And I think that's, you know, you see this with like Microsoft and OpenAI. I think it's a, like, that is a transformative relationship. It's, um, there are a bunch of other, there aren't that many like really shining examples. Um, but I think that if you do it well, uh, it's not, you know, it's much easier said than done. But if you do it well and you marry kind of the innovation of the startup with the scale and resources of the incumbent, you can really do transformative things. Um, so I, you know, was fortunate to be at the intersection of a few of those in the, at Visa and, you know, here at Microsoft as well. Now, did they always have a venture arm or is that something that was just created? They did not. There? Yeah. So the actually the investment in Square was done sort of through the corp dev team. Like there was no dedicated venture arm at the time. Um, they had done some investing in the past, but it was not really a, a dedicated program. And so we had a new CEO come in, Charlie Scharf, who's actually on the Microsoft board, um, as luck, uh, as it turns out. Um, and Charlie was uh, really, he had come from the East Coast and he really wanted to lean into the Silicon Valley. Uh, I guess the fact that we had all these major tech companies basically in our backyard. So Visa is actually headquartered in San Francisco. Um, and we, you know, we historically, they had only seen, you know, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Apples of the world as merchants processing payments, right? They didn't see them as like strategic partners. And so we really, the team that I was part of really leaned into establishing better relationships with all the tech companies, you know, from the very large, uh, you know, companies that I mentioned all the way down to like the long tail of startups. And there was an appetite at the time to really start investing a little bit more proactively. And so I raised my hand and basically we spun up a venture program, um, structured uh, and turned, basically created what is now Visa Ventures, um, created a program and to systematically and like intentionally invest and, in, you know, designed a whole like program around it. Um, strategy, like thesis driven investments, um, and then, you know, I, I basically led that and scaled it up into a global program um, by the time I ended up leaving. And we did some really interesting investments. I mean, you know, Stripe, we invested in them, Marketa, um, Chain, which, uh, you know, it was actually the first investment in a, as far as I know, the first investment in a blockchain company by any major payments network. 
Um, and actually, I introduced them to a number of folks inside of Visa, and that actually catalyzed a whole other set of conversations that led to a net new product that Visa ended up building, which was Visa B2B Connect, which is like a huge bet that they've made now on the commercial side of the house. Visa is a huge retail payments network. Most people don't know it's really a consumer payments network, but they have very little or they had very little uh, volume in B2B payments. And so that, that startup you know, incumbent collaboration ended up spinning out a product. Uh, that is now, you know, live in over 100 countries doing multiple billions of dollars in transaction volume and probably wouldn't have existed had it not been for that investment. So I think, that, again, like back to my thesis is like, if you marry startups with incumbents in productive ways, like magic really can can ensue. Yeah, and I saw one of the investments was Lupe, which I remember from the mm -hmm. Boston tech scene too. So yeah, Lupe ended up becoming, uh, we did that deal and originally we invested, that was the first investment we made actually uh, under the formal Visa Venture structure. Um, and that ended up, we did that alongside Samsung Ventures. They ended up acquiring the the company and it became the form, the basis of that team formed the basis of Loop, uh, sorry, Samsung Pay. Um, so it was, yeah, uh, nice that you, nice that you knew those folks. Yeah, very, very, I remember the acquisition and everything. So uh, mm -hmm. good outcome. Um, all right. So what'd you do next? Uh, well, I was at Visa for a while, and then I uh, really enjoyed that. It was a great ride, but I got the itch to build again. And so I'd been there for six years, and um, and it, I actually tried to invest in this company called Very Good Security. I wanted to do their Series A. And uh, another investor came, a financial investor came in, took the whole round. Uh, it wouldn't, there was no allocation left for us, and I was like, oh, man. So I, anyway, I stayed in touch with the founder. I ended up leaving Visa. I was trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do next. Uh, I was like, I probably want to go back to the startup world and build something. And then I reconnected with the founder of, of VGS or very good security. And um, I still love the idea. I love the problem that they were addressing. Basically um, VGS essentially helps businesses maximize the value of their sensitive data. Um, so if you think about it, like if you don't want to get hacked or if you want to achieve like PCI or other types of compliances easily, the best way to do that is not have sensitive data in your environment. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that you just don't have to do because it, it's not in your you know, instead of shoving money under your mattress at home, you put it in a bank vault, right? It's like purpose built to hold sensitive things. Uh, and then I, you can use remote controls like, a, you know, to direct the, the value different places, right? Just like we do with your, your money in a bank. I can use a mobile app or something else to like move funds here and there. We, VGS does the same thing with data, essentially. Like, so they have a specialized vault for sensitive data, mostly fintech and payments data and PII data. And then... Uh, um, allow companies to, you know, have full access and use of that data without the risk of holding it themselves. So if we've got customers, you know, range from McDonald's all the way down to uh, really interesting fintech startups and everything in between. Oh, right, let's bring uh, our audience up to speed on, you know, we kind of talked about this at the beginning, but M12. Yeah. Um, so so what, what stage of investing are you focused on? Is there a particular like thesis or vertical that you're aligned with for you specifically? Yes. So M12, uh, as you noted, Microsoft's venture arm. Uh, I look, my, my team looks after investments in B2B SaaS primarily, uh, as well as AI, um, Web3 and, and gaming. So in the, and within B2B SaaS in particular, we focus on retail and commerce enablement, uh, financial services writ large. So that's payments, insurance, capital markets, as well as supply chain and manufacturing. So those are the kind of the primary verticals. We've also done some healthcare investing in the past. 
Um, and then, of course, we we also are very focused on AI and how AI is transforming how software gets built, and also AI core technologies that are enabling um, new innovations in AI. Um, so we've actually been a long we have a long history of investing in that space, um, even well before this latest type cycle. Uh, we've been uh, we have, we've had a quite a AI portfolio, um, but I mean the primary I guess my primary focus is B two B SaaS um, in those in those verticals as well as AI. And so is it it's Series A, Series B? Oh, sorry, yes, absolutely. So seed through B, primarily Series A and Series B. Um, we will. That's to my earlier comments. We look for ways to be able to add value and to really work with our startups. And so we tend that tends to be best aligned to companies that have some initial traction. They have early product market fit. They know who their customer is, right? They've got some sort of sales motion that is repeatable, um, and that's where we can really add fuel to the fire. Uh, so we'll we'll engage as early as a seed stage investment, but our primary sweet spot is kind of Series A and Series B. Got it. Okay. So what would be some examples of some of the portfolio companies that are under the M12 umbrella? Yes, uh, some of the companies we've... So one of the companies, as an example, is InWorld. So they are uh, in the gaming space. So they power non-playing characters in games, NPCs. And they're sort of an AI-powered brain. Uh, you can think of them uh, powering NPCs in games. And so we actually announced uh, recently a, a multi-year co-development partnership with Xbox. So this is to the earlier point of like looking for ways to work together over time. That was not contemplated on day one, right? Like that was through the work of, you know, the Xbox team, M12, InWorld, all collaborated and a lot of work went into that ultimately to do a product partnership. But InWorld, um, you know, does really interesting things in terms of like AI enabled gameplay and, and NPCs. And so you can kind of think of it as a character engine that can enable entirely new forms of gameplay and narrative within like dynamically generating. So uh, one, one of the ways I like to think about this is like an infinite choose your own adventure. If you remember those books from back in the day, like you can each, you know, gameplay can be unique and different and can be contextually aware based on what the gamer is, how the gamer is interacting with uh, the NPCs in the game. So, you, you know, never quite the same thing twice. Um, so that's one example. Um, another recent uh, AI investment that we made was uh, a company called Typeface. So they're a generative AI company, and they really focus on helping enterprises, so businesses, use AI to create marketing, collateral, um, images, text, um, you know, a bunch of different types of um, media uh, that is in keeping with kind of the enterprise voice and their brand, right? So if you think about Generative AI is very new and novel and very creative, but if you're a business, you want to do that in a way that, you know, is in keeping with kind of the, either the brand image or the the voice that you have. Or, and so Typeface enables companies to do that. So how, do, how does an entrepreneur get on your radar? Like what's, what's like your process typically? Uh, they, through, you know, good deals can come from a lot of different places. Uh, we work closely with a bunch of other investors who, you know, we co-invest with. Um, they could, you know, entrepreneurs are always welcome to reach out directly. Um, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm Peter on Twitter. Uh, you can also just uh, email me at uh, peterberg, all one word, at m12.vc. Um, and, and then we, you know, do a lot of, uh, we'll do proactive sourcing as well. So we are thesis-driven investors in M12, which means, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of the my focus areas, my team's focus areas. But we start by kind of having a thesis in certain domains or industries and then go out and proactively look for companies that are solving those 
problems or addressing those opportunities, um, as well as, you know, I mean, inbound and when warm intros are always welcome as well. And if someone is able to like you know, land their first meeting with you, like what do you what do you hope to get out of that first initial meeting with a entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, I, this is a good question. I actually re recently tweeted about this. I think the if you're meeting just general in, advice for founders, if you're meeting with an investor, like clearly articulating your value prop upfront. Um, you know, we look at so many different. We look at hundreds or thousands of companies in a given year, and so really quickly understanding what it is you do, what the, what the opportunity or the problem is that you're addressing. Um, I'm always looking for, you know, to get a really clear understanding of that. And I'll never be as close to the the problem or the opportunities a founder is. So I think really, I want to as quickly as possible, really understand like, why are they choosing to spend their time on this particular issue, right? Like time is, I think our most valuable asset. So what are you building and like, why? Um, and then I'm also looking for, you know, trying to quickly assess from that how big do I think the market opportunity is? Like, is this aligned to our thesis areas? Is there a way that I can, you know, potentially work with this company over time? Um, and I'm also looking for kind of the the caliber to get a read on the founders, uh, kind of how hungry, how aggressive, like, how, you know, what's their domain expertise? Like, why is this the problem that they're choosing to spend all their time on, right? And what do we think the business opportunity around it is? Are there other, you know, we talk about benefits of working with a CVC, like with Microsoft, you'd be like, I could build on Azure, right? Like the cloud and like, do they have get like special access to that? Like meaning find like, like there's, you know, part of the investment is I don't have to spend money on, on my cloud provider, <laughs> you know, like. Absolutely. I mean, so there are a number, there are a range of benefits from working with M12 and Microsoft in general. So we also work very closely with uh, colleagues in Microsoft for startups uh, who have, you know, the, it doesn't require investment to be part of our founders hub, which is uh, the, the, I guess, the startup program that they have for early stage companies. And through that, you can get access to Azure credits. Um, so cloud compute. We also, M12 in particular, recently announced a, uh, in partnership with Microsoft for startups, access to GPUs, which are, you know, these days are, are in short supply. Uh, so we have a, a dedicated cluster of GPUs for high potential AI companies that are early stage. We're doing, we're initially making that available to Y Combinator and also to the M12 portfolio, hoping to expand that to, you know, more access to, for startups over time. Uh, and then there's a the whole range of other capabilities that we can help companies access um, either directly through M12 or through the broader Microsoft ecosystem. So certainly cloud credits are among them. Um, we also have advisory networks. We can make introductions to you know product or domain experts. Um, and then also we have uh, the group that M12 sits in, uh, Business Development Strategy and Ventures, has recently launched uh, a series of co-innovation, AI co-innovation co uh, labs where it's actually hands-on keyboard support for engineers who are uh, and companies that are building really interesting things in AI. So they can actually sit with our engineers and, and address either, you know, optimize existing uh, products or test out new things. Um, it's like a very tangible, like practical uh, application of AI with uh, our own kind of Azure and, and AI experts. So uh, I know Microsoft uh, is the investor in open AI, not, M12, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. But, but is there, you know, is that another part of a potential, you know, working with M12? Hey, we do have, you know, this relationship with OpenAI and there's obviously some great benefits there. 
Yes. I mean, uh, we like to say that, you know, M12 investment, it's like the, the membership has its privileges if you're in the portfolio, right? So uh, while we, to your point, we did not invest directly in OpenAI. That was Microsoft, our parent. Um, we do have a very good relationship with OpenAI. Uh, in fact, recently uh, we held a portfolio day with OpenAI. So a number of, uh, I think 20 or 30 of our companies um, actually went to the, spent a day at the OpenAI offices uh, walked through their kind of latest product roadmap, um, did some engineering collaborations, um, and talked about kind of things that were coming and, and solving, uh, you know, their individual kind of problems and opportunities. And so um, that's another example of like ways that we can open access and, and provide resources to and for our startups. Um, so yeah, we love the OpenAI team and have a good good relationship there. Yeah, that's a huge, huge benefit to be able to have you know, that early access so mm -hmm. how, how much is microsoft ceo like satya how much is he involved uh, i know that you know you guys make your own investments so i'm not saying he's part of that but does he have involvement to the degree that it, you know you would want him to be uh he is a, an amazing leader and I, we are extremely fortunate to have uh his support so we we actually do um set up a few um both uh, showcases, startup showcases for the senior leadership team, including Satya, um, and also do some startup roundtables periodically throughout the year that we help facilitate. Uh, he's an extremely engaged leader. I mean, he really is. It's actually kind of amazing to to be in meetings with him. He's just so, has such a high, you know, he can do the high level CEO strategy and then just dive deep into technologies that are just, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at like his level of expertise and knowledge in specific domains. Um, and then the ability to zoom out again is just, it's really impressive. So um, we're extremely fortunate to have a relationship with him and his broader leadership team. Um, and, we, you know, we value that a lot at M12 and we try to, you know, work towards building that across the organization, not just with him, of course. Um, but yeah, we're very fortunate in that regard. All right. So the past year, especially if not longer, it's been a slog for entrepreneurs. Raising capital has been a very difficult market coming off of you know blockbuster years of valuations and capital raised so um i'm under the pretense that hey there always needs to be a correction and having gone through two different cycles this is another one and you know one would say this is the best time to build a company so what's your your thoughts on on the current landscape of the time we're in yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a very challenging time in some regards. I think also historically, I, you know, I'm I'm old enough now to have been through a few cycles as well. And so a lot of companies, some of the best companies have been built in those challenging times. And I think my hypothesis is that, you know, it forces a level of focus and uh, even frugality to a certain extent on the business side where you really have to make sure that you actually have something real. Right, the free money days are very much over. Uh, they may come back, but I'm not. I wouldn't count on it. Right, um, like the zero interest rate phenomenon is is a thing of the past at this point. Um, and so free money's gone. So you really need to think about like making the capital you have work uh, and optimizing uh, whatever you have. So I think that's you know that's where we're seeing a lot of challenges with companies that have maybe raised at you know very lofty valuations in the past. A number of them still have a war chest that they're working through, but if your business model fundamentally doesn't work, or if your unit ec economics are upside down, um, you know you really need to get lean or get profitable as fast as possible. 
And I think for net new companies that are getting built, uh, it's actually very encouraging. I think at the seed stage and the early stages, we're seeing company, we're seeing founders that I think understand the landscape that they're operating in are, and are being very um, capital efficient in most cases. Um, I think the, you know, the later stage companies that raised in the, in the ZERP days, like it's a mixed bag, right? I and mean, we've seen a lot of them have real challenging headwinds or struggle to raise the next round um, because they kind of got ahead of themselves on valuation versus the traction that, you know, now investors expect to see at that stage, right? If you're a series C or D company, like there historically, there are certain metrics that are associated with being at that level. Right. And, um, and during ZERP, I think we forgot a lot of that, right. And like uh, kind of overfunded a lot of things. People got a little rationally exuberant. Um, and you see that in, even in public companies, right? Like the forward, I think the forward multiple on ARR right now for most public companies is like the median is somewhere around like six X roughly. Um, whereas during ZERP, it was as high as like 17 or 18 X. Right. Uh, and so, and that's like in line with historical averages, you know, back to like 2005 almost. Right. So if you think you're, you know, a six X multiple on average or the median um, on forward ARR, Right, like that's a very different situation, right? And if you raised at a valuation that was giving you a credit for 17x, right? And now the the new benchmark is six, like it, that that makes for a lot of very awkward uh, situations for for companies that you know raised in that era. Um, that said, to your point, like I think we're seeing a, a crop of founders and a crop of companies coming out. Um, this could be become one of the best times to invest, uh, you know, now and going forward. Um, because I think if you can also with AI, we're seeing the really lean teams that are very quickly getting, you know, revenue generating and getting up to speed, like doing things that ordinarily would take, you know, a lot more, more head count to achieve. Uh, and it's kind of incredible to see. So um, I think we're going to see some, a lot of interesting companies being built. And certainly we're, you know, at M12, we're actively investing, actively deploying capital and um, would love to talk to anyone doing, building something transformative. And when I think of the last cycle, it was, you know, Uber and Airbnb and all these like anchor companies were built during that stretch. Yeah. Um, so the, the term, I might have just been late to the party here, but ZERP, is that, when did that, when was that acronym coined? And I hear it all the time now, but I didn't. And I'm like, was I just late to hearing this? Or is this like a new acronym that's always been around? We knew the time and era yeah. of it. But yeah. now people throw that term around like all the time. Now I'm just like, did I just not hear this for months, or was I just? Like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where buzz, buzzwords come from. They kind of just enter to the zeitgeist, and everyone, it's like you never heard it, and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. Um, I don't know where it came from, but it, yeah, zero interest rate phenomenon or ZIRP, ZERP. Um, yeah, I mean it's basically like the free money era, right, where interest rates were zero and like money was abundant. Uh, that is not the case now, obviously. Um, so cost of capital is a lot higher, so you got to think about where it's coming from and. Yeah, I mean it's a totally different environment. Um, I, I think you know clearly in looking in hindsight is obviously a bubble, right? And like and, it, and thankfully I think M12 avoided most of that. I mean we did not get this is I've only been at M12 a little over a year, um, so I wasn't there in like the peak of the frothy period. But I mean the portfolio, you know, they were pretty judicious with capital deployment for the most part, and. Um, you know, I think we're trying to be good stewards of capital going forward as well. You just have to be aware of the macro climate, right? And kind of what the, what valuations and um, also public markets, what what's happening there, right? There's liquidity has dried up, right? Like, you know, the IPO window has been closed for a long time. Maybe it cracks open a little bit, um, but it's, it's tough. 
and, and you need that liquidity kind of to get back into the into the e ecosystem, right? Like every stage, like from LPs, which who are the investors in venture funds, and then you know venture funds invest in startups. And if there's no, no liquidity, that capital is locked up and it doesn't get recycled back into the ecosystem into new investments, right? So um, that's also contributing to some of this, um, some of the challenges uh, in in the investing climate. Um, so. Yeah, it's a tough road. I mean, I'm not going to say I had a crystal ball because I didn't. And it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and look back and be like, oh, I knew it. But I, I just the number of companies that were raising at a billion plus valuation, I just was like, this is not good. <laughs> like this could not be good. And if you're a founder that raised at that valuation, it's like, okay, now that means your investors are expecting that rate of return. And if you're going to raise another round, that means that you don't want to do a down round. So that only means it only needs to be that much greater as your business growing at that clip. It just seemed yep. unsustainable. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, actually, Sam Lesson posted something recently that I, I like this framing. It was kind of like the, um, <clears throat> the, like assembly line or like factory line of investing almost, right? It was like just as long as you got through certain stages and got to the next gate, right? Like there was an up round waiting for you more or less, right? During that free money era. And like that is that like the music has stopped on that. Like the the, the conveyor belt is shut down, right? Like, and so if the, you know, you can't just be like, oh yeah, we'll just parlay this into the next round. Like fundraising is not an outcome for companies. Like that is not an objective. Fundraising as my, uh, my friend at, at Better Tomorrow Ventures said, fundraising is a stay of execution. It is not a uh, it is not a goal unto itself, right? Um, because as a startup, your default is to die, right? Like your default is dead, and you need to generate revenue or get investment. And when you run out of money, like that is the that is the fatal uh, you know cause of death for all startups. Is like if you're out of capital, like game over. And so um, the best funding, I, I shouldn't say this as a venture capitalist, but like the best funding is customer revenue, frankly, right? It's non-dilutive. It shows that you have something like that's what you want as a founder. Um, now, the reason to take venture capital, it, there are many reasons, but one of the big ones is to accelerate your ability to capture a market or to, to develop a product. So if you have something that's working and you really want to like accelerate it dramatically, you know, injecting capital so you can grow faster than or you would organically, that's the way to do it. Right. And then additionally, in you know, from a CVC standpoint, there are strategic investors you can add who might be able to add more than just capital, right? Access, distribution, like any number of other things. Um, and so, you know, I think actually for M12 and and CVCs generally, like this is a great time. Like, and for founders, I would think, especially if you're a B2B in B2B SaaS and selling to other businesses, like, I mean, I I think you know, I'm so fortunate to be at M12 right now. We have not only capital at disposal, but we also have a, an, an incredible array of resources that we can put to work for and with our founders. And I think that's a really um, dramatic advantage for the companies that take our money. So um, in that sense, it's actually a great time to be investing uh, and a great time to be working with founders, right? But I, I think as a founder, you just need to know what you're in for and and, um, and be wise, right? Like use capital efficiently. Well, typically I ask the question, hey, top three apps you can't live without. But instead, I want to geek out on one particular product that you were uh, that you tweeted about that I think is extraordinary in terms of what they continue to do. And I just love the brand the company and it's Spotify. And your mm. tweet was about how they added the audiobooks as part of your subscription. Yep. So they recently, yeah, they recently added some audiobook access for, for premium subscribers. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
I somehow, I mean, cause they didn't really promote it. All of a sudden I just logged in and I just, I don't know, maybe they were suggested for you like a book. And I'm like, what? And I clicked on it. And I was like, wait, I can listen to this now. Cause I, I had an audible subscription. Cut that immediately. Cause I'm like, so yeah, um, like with my family plan, I get 15 hours baked into mm-hmm. my subscription. I'm like, are okay, they sponsoring so, this podcast? Uh, they should be. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not encouraging them to charge me more because, but I'm like, okay, you consolidated all my music. Um, my kids, my wife, we're all on the same plan. Uh, you eventually got me to switch all my podcasts over to Spotify. I used to have Apple, you know, podcasts. I don't use that anymore. It's all on Spotify. And now my audiobooks on Audible, that's gone. Now my books are here. And like for 15 hours, that's, you know, I'm probably like 12 to 15, like on my way to work, I'm going to listen to a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like, man, this company continues just to really earn my, my, my money. And I feel great about paying them. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, have, I have nothing to add. I mean, I, th- I think you're right. Like, it's very interesting. Um, it's also interesting, you know, the it's still a founder led company. Um, but yeah, I mean, I appreciated that they, that they just dropped that in there for me. I'm thank um, thank you. <laughs> I enjoy, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I was not an audible subscriber, but it was a nice, uh, nice way to kind of, I think it, it's always nice when companies surprise you with like, um, additional value or additional like features that, that are genuinely useful. All right. So speaking of audiobooks or books or podcasts, what, what would you recommend for uh, founders? Any particular titles? Oh man, uh, putting me on the spot here. Um, yeah, I, I really like uh, there. There are a number of podcasts that I like. You know, obviously Venture Fizz. Everyone should be listening to that. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but aside from that, aside from the obvious, um, uh, there's uh, there are actually a number of podcasts that are quite interesting. Um, from uh, some of the senior leadership at Microsoft, not to like be too like plug our own thing, but like some of our, like Kevin Scott has a podcast, like Ian Johnson in cybersecurity. Uh, I think Brad Smith has done some episodes as well. So like, those are actually quite interesting. They get some really in- uh, interesting guests and like, you know, have that perspective. I think on the other side, like Elad Gill and Sarah Guo have um, no priors, um, very AI focused. If you're into that, um, uh, they get some great guests there. I've also, um, I'm just always curious. So the knowledge project with Shane Parrish is, uh, is one that's really interesting. Um, he th- talks a lot about like, you know, mental models for thinking and frameworks and has some really interesting, um, uh, guests on from time to time. So I'd say those are a handful of my favorites. All right. Outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, I have three young kids, so, uh, that takes a decent chunk of time outside of work. Uh, that being said, uh, they're a ton of fun though. Uh, so I like doing stuff outdoors um i also like uh cycling um so i'm i um i'm based in marin which is north of sf now and so i i was a road by, uh, cyclist for a long time and i still am but now i've gotten more and more into trail riding so i try to get out into nature as much as possible um very cool yeah so i think at stanford you were a cyclist there too right like yeah, I was on the cycling team at Stanford, uh, and then uh, so I've always I've, I've loved biking for a long time. But um, I still, you know, try to get out as often as I can. Not not as much these days as I used to, but um, it's really nice to have access to the trails and just some great riding in the Bay Area overall. Um, do that, and then when and then when time allows, some music on the side. So I like to like to play the music at home as well. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great work that you and the team at M12 have been up to and obviously all the great advice. 
Thank you, Keith. It was a pleasure to be here and thank you for ha very much for having me.